0: You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Good morning.
1: My name is Adnawan Severe. I'm a senior associate here at Carnegie's Energy and Climate Program, and I'd like to welcome you all. Uh, apologies for the slight delay, as there has been a major traffic jam, which is which caused this delay, and, and we really wanted to wait a little bit. Uh, now uh, it's it's a really it's uh, honor for us to be hosting this U.S. launch of, of this major report by the International Energy Agency, the Golden Rules for a Golden Age of Gas. And uh, as this is a, tr- a report of really tremendous importance, as it covers a subject that as uh, one could probably describe as one of the major, uh, most important innovations in the energy sector of the past few decades. That is uh, the innovation in the, in the unconventional – about unconventional gas. Uh, it's not coincidence that it has been described very often as revolution. Uh, these are the words that are very common used whenever you talk about unconventional gas. And, of course, a key question is how this revolution is going to unfold. And uh, it's, you, you can never take it for granted. It's very important to discuss what will be the major driver there. And one of the major drivers that will determine how it unfolds is uh, how the environmental challenges are tackled in relation to developing unconventional gas. And this is a report that provides a guideline about the ground rules to tackle these environmental challenges. We are joined here by a very distinguished panel of uh, leaders in this field. Uh, we'll start with opening remarks by Ambassador Pasquale, followed by, uh, by half an hour presentation of the report by International Energy Agency's chief economist, uh, Dr. Fatih Birol, uh, following his presentation, we'll have two more speakers, uh, Gina McCarthy from the Environmental Protection Agency and uh, Eric Pooley from the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Ambassador Pasquale. Uh, we are very honored to have your presence here to, to do the opening remarks. Ambassador Pasquale, as you may know, is the State Department Special Envoy and Coordinator for International Energy Affairs, uh, in this capacity, he advises Secretary Hillary Clinton on energy issues, ensuring that energy security is advanced at all levels of U.S. foreign policy. Prior to his appoint- appointment, Ambassador Pasquale served as the United States Ambassador to Mexico and was Vice President and Director of the Foreign Policy
2: Studies Program at the Brookings Institution.
1: Ambassador Pasquale, the floor is yours.
2: And thank you very much. It's, uh, it's great to be back in the neighborhood again, um, and uh, I see my uh, predecessor, David Goldwyn, in the audience, and a great deal of the work that the State Department is doing on gas issues really goes back to David's time, who had the foresight to to identify some of the resource potentials and the environmental issues and really got the State Department involved in this in a central way. Uh, One of the things that David did was he laid the foundations for what now has become an energy resources bureau in in the State Department. Um, The job that we have I divided up into three parts. One is the energy (coughs) world that we have today, which is 85 percent hydrocarbons, and how do we manage that effectively, the energy world that we have to build for the future, and how do we create the incentives, the market incentives, to create the demand for energy efficiency, renewable energy, and clean energy technologies. And then the world that doesn't have energy and how do we develop commercially viable models so that they can in fact generate and stimulate the private investment that is necessary to build energy access. And that, it's in that context that I have been become involved in these issues. I'm extremely pleased um, with uh, and, and thankful for the fact that Carnegie is hosting this session. There is no issue in the energy world that is more important and more challenging on economics, on energy policy, on environmental policy and on foreign policy. And uh, Jim Collins, I know, is here, and, uh, uh, and i I'd underscore this last bit on the foreign policy bit because the implications are absolutely huge as well in the way that gas is, is traded into the future. And so what I'd like to do in the opening is just give you a, a taste, a little bit of a taste of the complexity of these issues and what's to come. And, um, and then the panel will continue from there, and I will look with great interest for the recommendations and the advice that many of you might provide today, but I hope we can continue this dialogue and maintain it afterwards. Uh, in a sense, this graph actually tells you what this is all about. In about 2005, 2006, um, unconventional gas, shale gas, accounted for about 1 percent of U.S. gas production. Um, today, it counts for about 35 percent. You see it there in the context of uh, the gas mix overall, increasing to potentially about 49 percent, almost half of gas in 2035. And if you add tight gas and coal bed methane, unconventional forms of gas will cl- be close to about two-thirds of the gas that's produced out of the United States, which is just stunning. Um, the way that it's produced is that, as opposed to normally uh, in the past of what you've had with conventional gas, is that you drill thousands of wells. And each of these has an initial large spurt and then a, a lifespan where it begins to tail out over time. And what you basically see here in the psychedelic graph that my 12 year old son thinks is the only good part of this presentation is that. You you see how these wells follow on to each other over a period of time. But this is also what begins to tell us about what some of the environmental challenges are, because you're drilling thousands of wells. right, and, and as a result of that, you get a phenomenal amount of movement into communities. You get trucks and, um, constantly moving in and out. You get questions that arise of, are there um, emissions that escape from these wells? What is the impact on the water table? How much water do you need to actually um, in, uh, use in production? What kind of chemicals are being used in the process of, of fracturing, in the, in the process of hydraulic fracturing? Where do the chemicals go when they come out? How do they get treated? Is there a seismic impact as a result of drilling these thousands of wells and hence the questions that arise of is this an environmental environmentally sound set of processes that are, are being undertaken and again this, these are sets of questions that are proposed in the Golden Age of gas report and the rules for the golden age, rule, uh, Golden rules for the Golden Age of gas to be able to ensure that if you're going to follow a path like this, you can actually make it of an environmentally sustainable path that gets pursued. In the United States, um, we have been quite active in trying to address these issues. I know Gina will go into these in much greater detail. The President asked Secretary Chu to convene an advisory board that gave him a whole series of recommendations. There have been a number of internal coordinating processes that have been led by the White House. She'll talk more, I'm sure, about the work that they're doing on water and other regulatory issues. The Bureau of Land Management is putting in place as proposed regulations on the disclosure of chemicals. That applies only to federal lands because they only have authority over that, but it has an impact on how states are going to respond. We've seen a number of states already take action. We were discussing the use of the progressive versus the past tense um, as we were on the way over here, and we can change establishing to established in the first two where there are a number of states that have been taken taken action already on disclosure and on baseline actions. And of course it's going to be critical to have a dialogue with communities because there is a lot of fear and concern about what this could happen. And so if this is going to proceed forward, has to be accompanied with seriousness on the environmental side to reassure communities and to make sure that we do it in an environmentally sound and sustainable way. Now... The importance of this is, is not just the United States, but what it means from the rest of the world. This is from an EIA, Energy Information Agency, study that was done um, some time ago. These amounts are way too high. It was a death study that was done over a couple of weeks. It's a quantitative analysis for illustrative purposes as opposed to definitive num- quantitative numbers. But it's illustrative to begin to indicate what the potential is around the world and how quickly it could grow. Now, look at this. Um, What we're going to do here is take one quarter of the amount of of the EIA study and follow the the development, the path of development in the Barnett field in the United States, and look what you end up getting. Uh, Look at that curve, the slope of that curve. And what it starts telling you is that, there's a, there's a realistic potential here that, that shale gas can, add, can go from the order of about 8 trillion cubic feet to 55 trillion cubic feet in a relatively short period of time, adding phenomenal volumes that come into play in the global environment. And so if these countries really have that kind of potential – Part of what we have been trying to do in the State Department, this is what David Golden was so critical in starting, is to begin a process of taking the best lessons that we learn in the United States on regulatory and environmental procedures and sharing them. Because this is, this is a no, uh, it, it, an everybody wins scenario. If a country is going to develop gas, one of the things that we want to make sure is that they do it in a way that takes into account the best lessons on, on what has been achieved. So... Um, Let me give another perspective on this. As a result of these increases in gas... You see, and this is from an earlier version of the Golden Age of Gas report that was done in the World uh, Energy Outlook last November. Okay, so you see gas rise like this. You see it start to bend the coal curve, another environmental benefit, if you can get it, of countries increasingly switching from coal to gas. You see oil start to taper off, another environmental benefit, if you can get a switch from oil to gas. You see... um, questionable issues that arise of how does this depress potentially other renewables and then you get another reality which is highlighted in the report which is it's if, you, if this is all you do, it's not sustainable. You can't make this all that you do because you end up with still 650 parts per million in CO2 concentrations, and everybody who's been schooled in the world of climate change knows that we, we, we can't go over 450, and some would argue that we have to be even lower. Right? So the point of this is that you can't take this as, an, as the end of the road. This comes from the World Bank, and it shows what you have to do, the kinds of measures that you have to take to get from the top, which is the business as usual case, to the bottom, which is a 450 parts per million CO2 concentration world. And the biggest issue is energy efficiency. That's what's going to get us the biggest gain, and we have to keep reinforcing the importance of that. So let me just give you a second on the geopolitics. Um, Here's a a map that – illustrates the, the price of gas around the world. In the United States, it's has been about $2 to $2.20 per million BTU. In Asia, it's been between $13 and $20, depending on the time that you buy and what's happening on the spark market. The reality of that is caused by demand in different locations, oversupply in the United States, in part because there are long-term contracts for coal, so we haven't been utilizing as, as much gas as we want as we might have otherwise. And the other reason is we can't export it yet. And that process is beginning. And the Department of Energy has an approval process that it has to go through in order to improve LNG exports. But here's another interesting dimension. Pipeline trade has still about 75% of all gas that's traded in the world, but LNG trade has been growing at around 20% a year. Pipeline trade has been relatively flat. So what does that mean for the geopolitics? Well, you know, when you have a pipeline, you have a point-to-point monopoly, right? If you have LNG, you have a competitive environment where you're starting to trade. And so how does that apply to the world? Well, You know, if you think about who has the biggest gas reserves or who has the largest recoverable reserves, Russia, Iran, put those two at the top. Are they interested in what happens on how you trade this gas and whether you have point-to-point relationships or whether you have a competitive environment? You bet. China, which is hugely increasing the amount of gas that it's trying to import. Japan, which has become particularly reliant on gas imports as a result of the shutdown of nuclear plants, you bet. And so these issues have fundamental, paramount foreign policy implications of who has power in the future, whether it's a monopoly power, whether it's a competitive environment. So what I want to leave you with is that as we go into these issues, they are hugely important and complicated because of the role that they're going to play on economics, on energy, on environment, on geopolitics. It is absolutely a critical thing that IEA has done when it's done. I commend you Fatih for the report that you have done and put together. Even if people disagree with parts of it, it is so important that we are having this discussion and debate. And so on that note, um, I'll say a couple more words about Fatih Barol, who is the chief economist at the IEA. I've been with him in multiple seminars all over the world. He has played a fundamental role in analyzing every issue from the balance in oil markets, the role of gas, the importance of renewable energy, and how we inject that in the way that the world conducts its international energy policies. And I congratulate you and the IEA for the, the role that you've been doing in that, Fatih. Uh, Gina McCarthy, who is the Assistant Administrator of EPA and responsible for the Office of Air and Radiation. She was previously in charge of uh, the Environmental Protection Agency in the state of Connecticut and has been a stalwart in ensuring that anything that we do with the advancement of gas also is addressing environmental concerns and will lay out more of what the U.S. government can do. Um, Eric Pooley, a distinguished journalist in addition to his role at the Environmental Defense Fund. Um, I haven't read uh, his book, The Climate War, True Believers, Power Brokers, and the Fight to Save the Earth. It's a great title. Um, as someone who um, you know used to work next door and used to write books and try to sell them as well, you know, buy his book. you just got to support us in this, in, in, in this principle. Um, Thanks but for the plug, Ambassador. He's had a distinguished world, uh, career at Bloomberg, at Time, and a uh, number of other places. So, Fantastic panel. Great discussion you're going to have. Adnan, congratulations for setting it up. Jim Collins, thanks for uh, asking me to participate in this, and I hope you have a great session today.
1: Thank you very much, Ambassador Pasquale, for, uh, for your opening remarks and for a very concise presentation that uh, outlined some of the really key questions that are uh, going to be discussed and going to be not discussed just today but will be fundamental for a very long time, I believe. I'd like to invite uh, Dr. Birol uh, to start his presentation on, on this major report.
3: Mr. Ambassador, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, dear colleagues, uh, good morning. Uh, I would like to thank, you, first of all, uh, Mr. Ambassador, for this very comprehensive uh, uh, presentation, remarks. And it is more or less – I don't know if you had time to read our uh, report, but it was more or less the executive summary of our report. So I am just going to elaborate some of the statements uh, he made and uh, try to uh, make some uh, detailed uh, comments. Last year, we uh, made a report, which we called, Are We Entering a Golden Age of Gas? With a question mark. And uh, in that report, it was in the context of World Energy Outlook, We we put the question mark because we knew that the resources were there as Mr. Ambassador showed you, we knew that the economics uh, would work, and we knew that the technology is there. But why we had the question mark is, we thought there was a potential roadblock in front of the going to a, a golden age of chaos, namely environmental and social challenges it faces during its extraction and production. So it is the reason why uh, we decided to suggest some principles, which we call golden rules in court, in order to, to be addressed, to be followed, to minimize, if not uh, nullify, the environmental implications of uh, shale gas or, in general, unconventional gas production. Because, to be honest with you, s- Some of the concerns, if not most, in many countries in the world, and the shale gas production and extraction are legitimate concerns. And in many countries today, we have the risks that the uh, shale gas production, unconventional gas production can be slowed down or stopped completely because of those concerns. So therefore, we thought we made such a report, in cooperation with many governments who have experience in the field, many experts, and some of them are here who has contributed heavily to this project, and also uh, companies and NGOs, academia, and uh, uh, others. So therefore, uh, I am going to now uh, tell you a bit, what are those rules, and if those rules to be applied, how the world uh, can change, and as Mr. Ambassador said, The changes will be economic changes, environmental changes, and perhaps the most important is the geopolitical changes. If I can uh, summarize in one sentence, I believe the unconventional gas boom, if it continues as we suggest, it can well fracture the established balances in the world energy system, as I'm uh, going to uh, try to uh, prove you. Now, Where are we now? First of all, we all know that in uh, North America, there is a a huge boom in terms of unconventional gas supply. The uh, resources are there. And uh, this has given some uh, good inspiration to many countries uh, in the world, China, Australia, in Europe, several countries in Europe, and in uh, Latin America. So this is definitely good news. And uh, there are different resource estimates, but even taking the most modest version of those resource estimates, which we did, is enough to uh, make this major change in the uh, global energy landscape. However, as I said, there are concerns in many countries about the uh, environmental and social risks that the production and the extraction of shale gas may contribute, especially for the local communities, in terms of land use, in terms of uh, water resources. We have seen a few uh, incidents in several countries which were definitely not very uh, helpful. And we also see, or we also know, that the not following the right practices may end up with uh, air pollution, and higher greenhouse gas emissions, mainly coming from uh, methane. And as a result, if they are uh, not addressed properly, uh, these challenges, it may well threaten uh, to uh, hold back of the unconventional uh, gas revolution. So therefore, we think a key uh, challenge for the industry is to get a, a, a visa, if I may say so, from the uh, public to get the social license to uh, operate. And this is definitely the key challenge in front of the shale gas uh, revolution. Now, therefore, we have uh, developed, as I said, in cooperation with many uh, experts uh, uh, throughout the world and uh, uh, companies and NGOs once again, uh, some uh, rules and which we call golden rules and which are the principles which we think that allow the government, industry, and other stakeholders, all of them uh, together, to address the environmental and social uh, implications. We have seven of them. The first one is about transparency. I think much of the public concern is linked in many countries' lack of enough uh, transparency public doesn't have reliable and up-to-date information, complete information, and this would definitely uh, be one of the key steps. For example, what we suggest is the governments and the companies, before they start any operation, they should measure the water quality, the air quality in in the region, and throughout their operation, continue to measure and monitor and give the results to the public, share it with the public, how it is changing, if it is changing, or if it's not changing, to make it uh, uh, public. Or uh, another one is about the uh, uh, chemicals. What kind of chemicals are used? What is the volume of that? What are the implications of that? We believe there is a need for full disclosure of the chemicals which are uh, used. Or with the uh, the, uh, engagement with the uh, communities, and we think that the there is a need uh, that the the companies uh, make sure that the uh, the benefits are also felt by the local communities, the benefits from shale gas uh, production. Second principle uh, we have is the watch value drill. I think uh, the careful choice of uh, the sites, the drilling sites, can reduce the, first of all, the above ground impacts the populated uh, sites versus non-populated sites, what kind of uh, areas uh, you are uh, drilling. And the below surface, I think there is a need for a very careful survey of the uh, geology and the seismic activities uh, there. Third point, <clears throat> the uh, to isolate the uh, wells and prevent the leaks. This is also uh, crucial because of the leaks are uh, very important in terms of the pollution and in terms of the water contamination. We think think that uh, the robust rules uh, need to be uh, uh, put uh, on the paper in terms of well design, how the wells need to be designed, the construction rules, and the cementing rules should be uh, put there, and the integrity tests of the wells uh, should be a part of a general performance standard uh, for, the, uh, uh, for the operations. And uh, perhaps in uh, some cases, the authorities may want to consider uh, the appropriate minimum debt uh, uh, limitations. The issue of water, I'm going very q- uh, quickly, these are all uh, detailed in our uh, report. Water is the, at the heart of uh, the uh, the. Uh, shale gas uh, um, uh, production. It requires much more water than the conventional gas, even though it is more or less equal to the oil uh, production, but requires more uh, than uh, conventional gas because of the fracturing, uh, of course. The sound management of water resources is at the heart of it, and uh, uh, particularly in the regions where there is a water scarcity. Mr. Ambassador showed the, uh, the China, for example. China is a. It's huge resources but the water scarcity water management is a key issue here and uh, we think the uh, reduction of the fresh water use by improving the operational efficiency is uh, crucial and also measures need to be taken in order to re- reuse and recycle uh, the uh, uh, water also in terms of the chemicals use uh, one may have to be uh, uh, one may consider that the uh, companies have to be encouraged, at least, to use uh, chemical additives which are more environmentally friendly. Fourth, eliminate uh, venting, uh, minimize uh, flaring. Methane, the major component of gas, is uh, 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 one of the, uh, uh, following the CO, carbon dioxide, uh, one of the major greenhouse gases, and it's a very potent uh, gas. And it is very important that the, the, the flaring and the venting of gas is to be fixed. So therefore, our here golden rules is the operators have to target zero venting and minimize flaring. And as such, the design and the competition is very, very important. Perhaps here we think public authorities may need to consider imposing restrictions on venting and flaring, and specific requirements for installing equipments to minimize emissions in the different uh, countries. This is definitely one of the key issues, and if you do this, uh, the the zero venting and minimal flaring, the difference of the CO2, uh, difference of the greenhouse gas emissions coming from uh, the uh, shale gas is only slightly higher than the conventional uh, gas. Be ready to think big. And what does this mean? The the authorities may think that there will be only one well before the operation starts, but uh, when you look at the the practice, uh, you see that there are multiple wells coming one after another, and uh, one has to uh, plan uh, very carefully from the beginning how all the logistics will uh, move around. To having, for example, lots of trucks bringing uh, water uh, to the uh, to the plants uh, may have uh, negative implications to think about, uh, for example, bringing water through uh, pipelines may require some upfront uh, investments, but at the end of the day it may uh, well, uh, pay uh, back. So therefore uh, there is a need for governments and industry to come together and uh, very good planning from the beginning uh, looking a bit of, uh, long-term uh, in this issue. Seven, uh, the There is a – we think we have to make sure that there's a robust and appropriate regulatory regimes are uh, in place. And the uh, governments, uh, we think, depending on the country, of course, uh, find the right type of uh, regulation. And uh, knowing that this is a fast-moving industry, uh, uh, governments have to find a very good balance between the prescriptive uh, uh, regulations and the uh, best-performing standards. Perhaps the best thing would be governments can put the standards, put the requirements, and leave it to the companies how, through which means they reach those uh, standards. And in some cases, there may be a need for a third-party assessment to the uh, uh, bodies which, are, uh, which enjoy public trust in terms of the, uh, in terms of the challenges that the, those sites are facing it can be universities, academia, research bodies, and other independent uh, uh, institutions. So these are the seven rules which are detailed out in our study. And we believe if those rules are followed, we may well uh, see getting a social license to operate almost in all countries in the world. Even in some countries in Europe, when we discussed uh, this issue, we have seen that there is a uh, – almost unanimous support that if those rules are followed, we can see a a more positive look at the future of uh, shale gas, and getting the social license to operate may well uh, pave the way for a golden age of gas. So how this golden age of gas can look like? So I wanted to a bit share our uh, views uh, on that. First of all, we think in a golden rule's case, it is an environment where we see uh, the uh, golden rules are applied and therefore greater availability of the uh, gas worldwide, and therefore there is a downward pressure on the international gas uh, prices. As a result of that, we still see conventional gas, of course, coming in the markets, but the biggest growth – in the next 25 years is coming from the uh, unconventional gas. Gas grows more than 50 percent globally and about two-thirds of this growth comes from unconventional gas, mainly shale gas, followed by uh, coalbed methane. And this is definitely something uh, very revolutionary in terms of the world energy system, and we expect bulk of the growth to come uh, after 2020 because in many countries like China, we will see the the biggest growth will come there because it will take take some time to put the things in place. In terms of uh, countries uh, for the conventional gas, it is, uh, again, Middle East and Russia uh, uh, where, where it comes from russia still increases its production about 150 uh, bcm and uh, also middle east and uh, north africa but growth which we expect to come from uh, china us and australia unconventional gas growth will be bigger alone to the all conventional gas growth in terms of uh, china china today produces about 15, 15 uh, bcm of uh, unconventional gas, and we expect that this could reach in 2020 uh, 20, around uh, 100 bcm, and this is much lower. I underline here much lower than the Chinese government target, which is set in stone in the five-year uh, plan. And China not only puts targets, but also they make the policy uh, steps, and uh, they are uh, they put policies in order to encourage, uh, uh, support the production of uh, shale gas and uh, uh, coalbed methane. And this is uh, definitely something uh, we have to look uh, uh, carefully. But in addition to those countries, we expect India, Europe, especially Poland, uh, Canada, uh, Indonesia, and uh, other countries are uh, uh, following, and the share of uh, U.S., in the unconventional gas production is going to decline as a result of strong increase coming from the other countries, even though, of course, shale gas production in the U.S. is growing significantly, but there will be huge growth from the other countries if we see a golden rules context. Now, in terms of the entire energy picture, uh, colleagues who are a bit worried. I know that some colleagues are a bit worried about the future of uh, other energy sources, especially renewables. They don't need to worry too much because when I look at the uh, numbers, uh, we expect the highest second growth coming from the renewable energies. And, of course, gas grows significantly uh, as well. Why? Because it will be cheaper, available everywhere. And uh, there is a lot of diversification in terms of the resources. The growth coming from gas, according to our uh, projections, will be equal to the total growth coming coal, oil, and nuclear power put together. But as long as the governments stick to their uh, uh, programs uh, for renewables, we expect renewables will also grow uh, substantially. And uh, we do not see any major problem that the gas and renewables can have a cohabitance to live together in the many years to come and to help to decarbonize the global energy system. And a couple of numbers, if you look at the numbers in different countries, what happened in the five, six years, they are also they are very good evidence of that. And therefore, one, of course, a point here, governments, when the – gas prices uh, become uh, cheaper governments perhaps uh, shouldn't think uh, to uh, take their entire support from renewable energies renewable energies need continued support and we also need renewable energies where will the demand come from demand will come mainly from the emerging countries uh, china is the of course the most important one Today, worldwide, gas is about 25 to 26% in the global energy mix. And then we have followed by oil, coal, and, and, and the others. And in China, it is a bit uh, different. In China, share of gas is only 4% in the Chinese energy mix, vis-à-vis coal, which is almost 70%, 68%. So 4% gas, 68% uh, uh, coal. So therefore, Chinese government, it is one of the reasons they put these targets in order to decarbonize the system, especially in the uh, uh, urban uh, areas for the air pollution uh, issues. But other countries are following uh, uh, China's example, uh, especially India, in, in especially in a context where the gas prices are uh, cheaper and when you see uh, more and more gas uh, available. And, of course, in the the OECD countries, U.S. and others, we see a stronger penetration of uh, gas, mainly as a result of the lower uh, gas uh, prices. Uh, In terms of the uh, sectors, it is mainly the electricity generation and the industrial sector. And in the uh, electricity generation, the main Replacement uh, likely to be the gas-replacing coal, in uh, many cases, and coal-fired power plants. Uh, Of course, we know that they have more than uh, 40 years of uh, time, and uh, uh, from that angle, to have more gas would also help not to lock in the uh, high uh, 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 CO2-emitting plants, and therefore it would be an opportunity, again, uh, to help to decarbonize the energy system. In terms of uh, uh, petrochemicals uh, and others, the industrial sector, uh, we see that uh, gas will play a key role in U.S., in in the Middle East uh, countries, in in Gulf, as it is a a key feedstock, and the low uh, gas prices will be definitely helpful. An issue that we didn't analyze, uh, we didn't think that is very likely now, but it can be a next chapter, which is the uh, using of gas in a substantial way in the transportation sector. It is something perhaps, again, the the world will look at the United States, what the U.S. will do. There are some examples in the U.S., in India, some other countries, but it is not in a major way yet. So, this Golden uh, Rules case would also need a major effort from industry. We have colleagues here from industry, uh, from uh, service companies and the others we need a huge amount of new gas wells. Today in the U.S., uh, we have about uh, 100,000 unconventional wells, and when you put unconventional and uh, conventional gas wells, which were put together in the last two decades or so, it's about uh, uh, 500,000, half a million. And in order to make this major growth in production uh, to uh, happen, uh, we need, according to our analysis on average, about 1 million new wells. And out of this 1 million new wells, uh, half a million to, to happen in the in United States, 300,000 roughly in China, and 200 rest of the world. Of course, this has two uh, major implications. One, for the industry uh, to be able to manufacture this, uh, given the constraints they are facing. And the second... Uh, how these wells going to be uh, uh, drilled and what will be the implication, again, once again, for the local environment. And we have also uh, analyzed that if those rules, I imagine those uh, rules which we call the golden principle, golden rules are uh, implemented, is it going to be a game-breaker from the profitability point of view? We have uh, taken uh, one uh, uh, prototype uh, well and in development, and our uh, our analysis shows that if all those rules to be followed, the the increase in the cost will be at the order of uh, 7%. So 7%, this is definitely not a a game-breaker. This is not zero, this is 7%, but uh, still it will leave handsome profits for the uh, uh, companies, uh, we think. And therefore, this is not a, a major uh, game breaker. Why do we need the 7%? A couple of uh, expenditures are uh, crucial uh, here. Uh, more time uh, needs to be taken for cementing the, to isolate the uh, wells and prevent the leaks. This is where the most of the money uh, goes. To install the uh, separated equipment, to eliminate venting and minimize flaring. This is definitely important. Using a green or uh, benign uh, fluids vis vis the traditional ones, which is uh, a bit more uh, expensive, and uh, the, to maximize the reuse of, of, of water. So these expenditures and the others make almost uh, 7%. Then comes the, a bit of the geopolitics of the uh, uh, story in terms of the trade. Now in a, such a golden rules uh, environment, we see that China imports gas, but not as much as uh, one thought before. Europe imports and the U.S. Uh, exports uh, gas, uh, uh, not as much as Middle East, but Middle East still does, Russia does. And this is definitely a completely new picture in a golden rules context. But we also look at the opposite picture. What happens if the, because of the environmental and social problems, s- remain unsolved and there is a blockage, there is a stop of the growth of unconventional gas, which we called low unconventional case. If there is not a golden uh, rules case, but those rules are not followed, what happens as a result of that? What we see, it means what the tide turns, we see that China needs to import double. European, Europe has to import more. And U.S., instead of exporting, uh, becomes importer. And Middle East and Russia exports are much higher. So which tells us that the, uh, this is unconventional gas boom is definitely good for many, but perhaps not good for everybody. So there will be be, uh, countries, traditional exporters, may uh, lose in terms of their share in in the international gas trade. So therefore, this is uh, definitely something that the major gas exporters, commercial gas exporters, may have to uh, uh, take note of. In terms of economic costs and uh, uh, benefits, in a golden rules case, uh, U.S. would make money. China would, uh, their import bill, gas import bill will be uh, significant, and Europe as well. But in a low unconventional gas case, uh, U.S. and Canada has to import, and the import bill of the uh, China and Europe will be much higher. This is not only because of the less domestic production only, but higher gas prices. Golden rules case means good news for the consumers and current importers. And love unconventional case means uh, good news for the traditional exporters, both in terms of volume and in terms of the international gas prices. Let me finish my uh, brief remarks with one uh, last slide. In the, we know that the, uh, the shale gas production, uh, there are sensitivities, environmental sensitivities there, local environmental sensitivities, which I try to address, that they need to be definitely uh, sold and addressed to get the social license. But from a global point of view, climate change point of view, Low unconventional case, it means no growth in the unconventional, is a bad news for the CO2 emissions. If the gas, if we don't see the growth in gas, because of the lack of growth in the unconventional gas, the fuel which benefits from them the most will be coal and very tiny bits from oil renewables and nuclear. And as a result of that, in a low unconventional case. There is no growth there. The carbon dioxide emissions are uh, 1.3% higher than in a context where we see a growth in the uh, conventional gas. But in any case, as Mr. Ambassador said, we do not reach even a golden Rules case to the uh, desired target of 2 degrees trajectory. We are far from that. It is 3.5 degrees. We still desperately need efficiency, renewables, nuclear power, and other low-carbon technologies. So, ladies and gentlemen, let me just tell you that we think the golden rules, what we suggest as principles, can help to address the environmental social impacts and can make the golden age of gas a reality. But there is a need uh, for governments and industry to address the in most cases, legitimate concerns of the local communities, and the the confidence is to be earned and in a continuous way maintained. We think the unconventional gas uh, can transform the energy markets by putting downward pressure on the uh, gas prices, which is uh, definitely good news for uh, uh, consumers, and then broadening the diversity and uh, and enhancing the security of uh, supply. And we also think that the natural gas uh, has a role to uh, slow down the CO2 emissions growth, but once again, it itself is not enough to bring us to a two-degree trajectory. Finally, at the IEA, we have decided, as a follow-up to this uh, work, to build a a high-level platform in order to exchange information to learn from each other's experience between our member governments first and together with the non-member governments in the context of uh, unconversion gas, which is a response to the G8 request recently made in uh, Camp David. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.
1: Dr. Birol, thank you very much for this uh, truly enlightening and very comprehensive uh, presentation. We'd like to move on to our next speaker, Gina McCarthy, from the EPA right now. Morning,
4: everyone. Morning, everyone. This is participatory government right now, so you gotta, you got to respond. Ambassador, thank you. I feel like you took us around the world in about 90 seconds, but it, it, it was great. It's, it's, you know, I, I, I thought I had a hard job until I, I started realizing you have to worry about geopolitical consequences. I worry about whether I get geology. So I think we're on a little bit different plane here, and I, I really appreciate the work you do, and it gave a great setup for some of the work that we're trying to do across the U.S. government. And let me just begin by saying um, that, that the Obama administration has both a coordinated and comprehensive strategy uh, in place to do what the President directed us to do. And in sum, the President told us that natural gas is a vital To our clean energy future, and that we have to take full advantage of our natural gas resources while giving American families and communities confidence that natural and cultural resources, air and water quality, and public health and safety won't be compromised. In order to develop and carry out that coordinated and comprehensive strategy, he has established a high-level task force. That task force meets very routinely Um, and it involves all of the related agencies and that task force is really designed to look at what information we have, what information we don't have, what research we need to do to gather that information, what is our authorities, what are our responsibilities. It's designed to work with states, with local communities, with the industry itself. It also is designed to recognize that there is tremendous leadership already in the oil and natural gas development sector that has developed best management practices that really reflect the application of cost-effective technologies in ways that will provide opportunities for safe and responsible natural gas development. And so we are working very hard to make sure that w- that, we de- that we give what the president demanded and, and understand how we utilize natural gas as a bridge towards a clean and sustainable energy future. Now, in particular, I want to talk a little bit about the work of EPA. Um, EPA has been working very hard at these issues. Um, I don't know if folks saw, but we had a hearing as, as uh, short time ago as yesterday to talk about issues around un- unconventional gas drilling. And there are, there is efforts underway at EPA that's both research-oriented, primarily directed at water quality issues. Um, we also have uh, work that's ongoing, working with states and local communities to work hand-in-hand to identify challenges that may be happening at this point And what do we learn from those in in deciding a pathway forward? And in particular, I want to talk about a rule that we just finalized in April that really looks at air air quality challenges associated with uh, oil and gas development and a rule that we finalized in April that will really significantly reduce smog-forming air pollution along with cancer-causing air toxics um, that are emitted from oil and gas production. And we expect that the combined rules will reduce between 190,000 and 290,000 tons of volatile organic compounds, 12,000 to 20,000 tons of air toxics, and as a co-benefit of those efforts, it will reduce between 1 and 1.7 million tons of methane each year. These emission reductions will benefit communities where those wells are located and will help reduce smog that can spread across the region. Now, this isn't just uh, uh, regulations that are directed at hydraulically fractured wells this although it is the first national standard to reduce air pollution from hydraulically fractured wells, it also addresses other sources of pollution in this sector as well that' would include equipment and processes that are used in several segments of the oil and gas industry including gathering and boosting stations processing com- processing stations, pipelines, compressor stations, everything that keeps the gas moving from where you pull it out of the ground to where it gets into the the transmission sys to the the transmission pipelines And, uh, we are, I actually am personally extremely proud of this rule, so forgive me. I'll try to keep it short. But only the earwonks would recognize how creative this approach was. And I will tell you, it is not easy for, for a national rule to capture a sector that is so quickly moving. That's related to thousands of individual small sources that in some cases, in the case of hydraulically fractured wells, actually emit, can emit significant amounts of pollution, and how we do that in a way that doesn't slow down development, and in a way that doesn't require any new state or federal permits. But we did figure out how to do that. And we did that in, in the direction of the president, which was to make sure that we could continue with development, but we did it in a way that was safe and responsible. So let me get specifically into the, the rule itself, although I won't get into the wonky world of air quality. Well, maybe I will. No, I won't. Um, so let me tell you about the rules. Um, they include the first federal um, air standards for natural gas wells that are hydraulically fractured. And I also said that we are actually addressing some, some rules that will, will um, shore up leaks that are now occurring at other segments of the oil uh, and gas sector and development process. For new wells, it's called the new source performance standard. And what I wanted to say originally is that, that the, the, the standards that we used in addressing the, the, the issues associated with air pollution from this sector very closely align with the golden rules that have been identified in this report. Now, it's nice to know that smart minds think alike, uh, but I will tell you they are based on work that we have done with the oil and gas industry, in particular the gas industry, through our Natural Gas Stop Program, and that is because we're taking advantage of the most responsible developers, and we're building on the foundation that they laid. That is based on the use of cost-effective technologies and techniques that reduce air pollution from this sector. So we had a wealth of information that we really owe not just to our own ingenuity in reports that are. Con- and information internationally, but from the industry themselves. And on New Wells, the new source performance standard is actually based to the extent that we could do it on, on um, performance not specific technologies, it has transparency as a fundamental as well as accountability because if you're not going to permit thousands of new sources, you better have transparency and accountability in a reporting process so that you can be assured that those standards are going to be achieved. It identifies green completions or reduced emission completions as the the system that best addresses air pollution, and it captures the combustion of escaping gas from hydraulically fractured wells. We also have allowed flaring. We do not disagree with the report that's been presented today. However, there was significant concern about the ability to ramp up the equipment necessary to get to these green completions as the standard of requirement. So in the interim, we have required flaring as a work practice standard until January of 2015. After that point, reduced emission completions will be necessary for natural gas wells for modified wells. Those are wells that are refractured. We are immediately exempting them from this rule as long as they do reduced emission completions. So for the first time, I think, EPA is actually regulating what we don't want and exempting what we do want. I really like that. That was the only ear wonky thing I was going to say. And the estimated revenues from selling the gas that currently goes to waste that will now be recaptured not only offsets the cost of compliance, but people will make money on this rule. Now, that in and of itself, I think, is something to celebrate. So in sum, these rules reduce harmful air pollution while they allow continued, safe, responsible growth in the U.S. oil and natural gas production. As an added benefit, today's rules do not directly target greenhouse gases, but again, the technologies and and practices that are, are needed to capture volatile organic compounds and toxic air pollution will capture methane. Methane is a greenhouse gas that is more than 20 times as potent as carbon dioxide, and it's also the primary component of natural gas. So EPA estimates that up to 1 to 1.7 million tons of methane will be cut from an industry that is responsible for 40 percent of the U.S. methane emissions. So I think I should end it there, but just uh, reiterate the fact that all of these reports that provide us information, allow us to develop a system that does protect American families in the way they expect government to protect them, using the best information, the most cost-effective way to achieve reductions, and in this case, a way to also allow industry to continue to do what they do well, to use best management practices, to level the playing field so that those best performers are driving up the performance of the the, the rest of the industry and actually allow them to make more money. How sweet is that? Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Gina. It was very uh, exciting to hear about this creativity of EPA, especially on this subject. Uh, Our last, but certainly not least, uh, speaker is uh, Eric Pulley from uh, EDF.
0: Thanks very much. Uh, My thanks to Carnegie for inviting me today. Um, I don't have a PowerPoint either. I think Gina and I are on a, uh, a two-man crusade to stamp out PowerPoints from public discourse in Washington, <laughs> and it's not going well. Uh, <laughs> but today we're winning. So if no one objects, I'm going to close this in hopes of just saving a little uh, – maybe we could even turn that off and save a little power. Energy efficiency. Um, so – I'd like to thank Gina McCarthy for her incredible work at EPA and her agency. Specifically, the uh, uh, the new rule that she just described is a very, very powerful one, a very sensible one, and a very important one. We support it strongly. Um, we uh, we'd like to uh, to also thank uh, the IEA uh, for putting out the golden rules uh, and for expressing them in. Uh, clear jargon-free language. Uh, I like to watch where you drill, uh, especially. Uh, But the rules make a forceful case for the need to get tough um, regulations and industry best practices in place for unconventional natural gas development. Um, EDF has been talking about this for some time now. And I think the report also illustrates just how much is at stake, both economically and environmentally, if we fail to get it right. So um, I'm just going to make three brief points this morning. Uh, First, uh, as Dr. Birol said, the environmental impacts of natural gas development are real, and they do need to be addressed. Um, At Environmental Defense Fund, our core concern is protecting – human health and the environment, and that's why my boss, Fred Krupp, was honored to serve on Secretary Chu's advisory board for natural gas, um, which, like the IEA's report, emphasized the need to get strong oversight in place, Uh, and that's why we're working hard both at the federal level uh, in support of uh, VPA's regs, but also in the 14 states that have 85 percent of the onshore domestic natural gas reserves. Um, that's where a lot of the actioning is ha- action is happening, uh, and uh, uh, we're working very hard in those places. Um, because, and my second point is, because these environmental impacts have largely gone unaddressed up to now, public trust has been eroding and continues to erode, uh, and it's at the state level where legislators uh, and regulators are perhaps feeling that most acutely and are beginning to respond um, as both Dr. Burel and IEA Executive Director Maria Vanderhoven have indicated, the industry's social license to operate is at risk. Um, and that's a crucial point because uh, industry is beginning to recognize this. Not all of industry, but some industry leaders are responding to this um, and understanding that it is in the industry's interest to embrace true transparency and disclosure and get the rules right. Uh, And so we're very, very heartened that a number of leading companies um, are recognizing reality and beginning to work very hard uh, in partnership with us and a a bunch of other stakeholders uh, to move forward and get beyond the debate that you might characterize uh, has been dominated by environmental voices saying just say no, and industry voices saying just say yes. We don't think either of those approaches are are necessarily effective. Uh, We think there has to be a very strong debate um, uh, about what has to happen for this to, to be done safely and responsibly. It's not a sure thing. It can be done, but that's a very different thing from saying it will be done. Uh, and it's not at all clear that we will be able to do this safely and responsibly. Uh, I think everybody in this room probably recognizes the economic and national security benefits of the shale gale. Um, they are obvious. They are very strong. Um, but if you travel in uh, areas of intensive shale gas development, um, You very soon come to the conclusion uh, that the environmental impacts are very real, too, and are very obvious, too, and they need to be addressed. Uh, We cannot uh, expect uh, local uh, communities to bear the brunt of energy development for the creation of cheap energy for all. It, uh, It would just be... Uh, wrong. We can't ask people to trade their kids' health or their quality of life uh, for cheap energy. Um, So I'm not going to belabor all of the particular environmental impacts. Uh, Speakers who have come before me have done a good job of of talking about smog-forming air pollution, uh, the spills and faulty well casings that cause groundwater contamination. Uh, I am going to mention a little bit more about methane Um, we really need to get serious about measuring and reducing leakage of methane. Um, it undermines, it undermines, uh, natural gas's role as a lower carbon alternative to coal and oil. Uh, the problem is that we don't have robust data on what the actual leakage rate is. Uh, the estimates range from roughly 2% to up above 6%. Um, the, uh, Uh, You know, we know that the leak rate needs to be at or below 1% of total production in order for uh, increased natural gas production to be a positive development for global climate change under all scenarios. And getting the leak rate down could be the equivalent of shutting down one-third of all our coal-powered power plants in this country, uh, or not, if we fail to get the leakage down. So what a tragedy it would be. If we have this significant transition from f- coal-fired power to natural gas-fired power, which is underway, uh, and yet we fail to realize any climate benefit from that, uh, that's a very real scenario if we fail to deal with the leakage rate, which has to start by measuring, and re- by measuring first. And EDF is uh, pleased to be working with eight natural gas companies in the University of Texas on a comprehensive study of the entire value chain to sort of try to get better data on leakage. Uh, and we're, we're grateful to the companies that are working with us on that. Um, the good, so that's part of the good news, but I'm going to share a little bit more bad news before I get to the good news. You know, I think too much of the industry has been in denial about this. Um, a lot, as a result, a lot of people in shale gas country feel, that the industry is running roughshod over their communities, over their concerns. And as a result, we've been seeing hardening positions against unconventional natural gas and spreading international opposition to hydraulic fracturing, bans in France and Bulgaria, moratoria in regions of Germany and Switzerland. In the U.S., a recent ban in Vermont, and local bans or moratoria in localities around the country. There are various camps. Nothing is monolithic. There are some folks in industry who say everything's fine and there's no need for regulation. There are others in industry who pay lip service to the need for regulation but fight every attempt to put real strong rules in place. Uh, In Ohio just last month, John Kasich, the Republican governor, introduced an ambitious energy bill with strong disclosure requirements for hydraulic fracturing and other natural gas operations. It was the broadest disclosure bill uh, the best single disclosure bill that had been introduced in any state in the nation, the industry fought him tooth and nail, and the General Assembly weakened the bill substantially. Uh, that's a shame. The bill that passed is uh, still has some decent disclosure provisions, uh, but it's nothing like what it could have been. Um, Industry spokesmen often split hairs about environmental damage in this area. On NPR recently, an American Petroleum Institute spokesman asserted that there are zero known cases of hydraulic fracturing causing groundwater contamination. Um, A hair-splitting truth, what he didn't say uh, was that faulty well construction and spillage related to those operations have indeed been the cause of contamination. When it comes to methane leakage, we sometimes hear industry claiming to abide by all existing rules when, in fact, there are basically no rules uh, since uh, EPA's is the first. Um, So we believe there can be a path forward here. We don't know that there will be, and we see hopeful signs. And if these signs move from hope and uh, positive indication into reality, we really think this can be done. But that's that's a very big if getting the rules right here. Um, above all, the fact that some industry leaders are recognizing that their license to operate is at risk and are responding to that is an incredibly hopeful sign. They're stepping up. Uh, they're working towards strong disclosure rules in some areas. They're working on industry best practices, uh, on disclosure of fracking fluids and other stimulating fluids, on well integrity, on wastewater disposal, on air emissions. Um, I mentioned that some companies have been joining with stakeholders, including EDF, to measure methane leakage. Uh, And more good news, there is widely available affordable technology to pinpoint those leaks. Uh, And some companies are working hard already to reduce those leaks, even before the regulations come into play. Um, In the past five years, to cite one example, Southwestern Energy Energy, uh, has cut the cost of capturing stray emissions, according to the company, from $20,000 per well to $0 per well. The company is now capturing an average of 16 million cubic feet of, cubic feet of gas that would otherwise have escaped or flared. Uh, they've developed special pop-off valves to make sure that natural gas is not released from well pipes. If pressure causes a valve to open, the gas is captured in a closed loop that returns it, to the system, saving the resource for the company, and the system's cost just 600 to 1,200 bucks a piece to put in place. So there's really no technological barrier to reducing leakage. We just have to do it, and that's enormously encouraging. Uh, and that's why when the API stood up against the uh, uh, the very sensible rules that EPA was proposing, Southwestern Energy stood up and said, "Quote." API's experience is not our experience. These rules are not going to break the bank. These rules are sensible. And in large measure, we're already abiding by these rules. And that's a case of industry best practice, where other people need to, other companies need to get to where the industry leaders already are. Uh, That's incredibly important. And doing that sort of thing is going to help to restore the trust that we need so much in this country and move us ahead. We have more voices beyond industry. We have influential mainstream investor groups like the Investor Environmental Health Network, which represents a trillion dollars in assets. They've come forward with a set of common sense guidelines for industry best practice that largely mirrors what EDF and the Golden Rule and EPA have been saying. So I'm also glad that there's a broader conversation. I need to touch on this point because it's so important, but I can't get into it because I'm out of time. a conversation about ensuring that cheap, abundant natural gas does not lock out renewable energies and energy efficiency. It's a key focus for us at EDF. The IEA report makes clear burning natural gas is not a permanent solution to climate change. It locks us on an unsustainable path. We need to find an off-ramp, and I think the key to that is going to be supporting fragile industries that are important to our future, and even more, getting the rules right – for in the power sector so that the smart grid is a green grid that accelerates and enables renewables. Uh, as the cost of solar power continues to drop and access to the grid opens up, we can see the same kind of mind-boggling wave of innovation and democratization in our energy system that we've seen over the past 20 years in our IT system if we get the rules right. So We can't have a monomaniacal focus on natural gas at the expense of other parts of the energy system. I say that as a a leader of an organization that sees a huge opportunity and a huge need to get the rules right in natural gas. So we have jumped in because to have this revolution take place before our eyes and not maximize the potential environmental benefit and minimize the potential environmental harm would be a catastrophic mistake. So we are trying to engage in a way that is uh, responsible, uh, that works together with any stakeholder that really wants to try to get this right. Uh, So I'm inviting folks in this room, investors, people from the energy industry, suppliers of the energy industry, customers of the energy industry, let's put our voices together and say, let's not screw this up. There's too much at stake. We need to do this right. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you for this forceful message. Uh, I'd like to open immediately for question and answers. As, as I should say, we have about 20 minutes. Uh, I, what I would suggest is uh, each of you uh, identify yourself and your affiliation and just ask one question, and please avoid making a statement as we don't really have much time. Thank you. Let's start with the gentleman there.
0: Thanks. My name is Antoni I'm a consultant the World Bank. I'd like to follow up on the question of chemical additives. Uh, the IEA's Golden Rules say disclosure fracturing food additives can and should be compatible with continued incentives for innovation. Uh, how much information is in the public domain on what these chemicals are? Uh, how much do we know? How much don't we know? How concerned should we be? And what is the administration's position on requiring. Uh, full public disclosure.
1: Okay. I, I'm going to take a few more questions so that uh, then we answer it all together here. Charles. Uh,
0: Charles Ebinger from Brookings. Charles Ebinger from Brookings. Uh, Fatih, I was surprised that in your discussion that we seemed to concentrate primarily uh, on the wells themselves, and this was also true to some extent of Mr. Pooley's comments. Uh, as I understand it, we, have the, we will have the need, at least in the United States, to build huge additional volumes of pipelines because of the shale gas, in many cases, being located far from existing pipelines. What can the government do if we want to stop flaring, and obviously pipelines are one component of that? How can we accelerate the process to get these pipelines built to help the industry uh, deal with that aspect of the flaring problem.
1: Let me take two more questions. Yes. Kasia Klimasinska, Bloomberg News. I have a question to Mr. Bureau about LNG exports. Uh, your projections assume there will be uh, LNG exports from the U.S., but the U.S., at least for now, have some concerns regarding primarily impact on uh, domestic prices. Uh, how, how do you expect the U.S. to, to basically solve these issues? Okay, and one final
4: question. Uh, Nina Gardner, Strategy International. I'm glad there was a discussion about the impact of natural gas on the renewable sector. And um, you mentioned that it was a bridge. This is only a bridge fuel. So the question is, what is the impact for the United States as we sort of use this as a way? We're not weaning ourselves off, uh, off the fossil fuels. And so the question is, the worldwide impact vis-a-vis countries that don't have national gas um, in terms of getting us to where we ultimately need to be in about 100 years or so.
3: Okay, thank you very much. Perhaps I can start with the reverse order and in the uh, question about the chemicals and the U.S. government's uh, move on the pipelines, my colleagues uh, may want to say a couple of things. Uh, Starting with the renewables, Now, um, worldwide, not only in the U.S., worldwide, we desperately need renewables. I should tell you that, because renewables are providing electricity without emitting any carbon dioxide emissions. Natural gas emits less than coal, but it is not completely innocent. It does emit uh, CO2 emissions, and there are other issues related to methane leakage and others. And by the way, when we talk about the methane, I don't know why, we are only focused on the shale gas production and the pipeline methane leakages. The bulk of the methane leakage is coming from the major non-OECD countries in the conventional gas distribution from the pipelines. And this is the order is very very big by the order of difference. <coughs> so we are just focusing on a very small part. In many countries, in uh, CIS countries and other countries, there is a huge, about eight to ten percent uh, of leakage, uh, leakage, which is huge compared to what we are discussing now. This is something else. Now, coming back to renewables, we need renewables, and in fact, I said the cohabitation between the renewables and gas is possible, and should be so. And there's empirical evidence. When we look at the last six years in the the U.S. electricity generation, gas-related electricity generation increased about 260 terawatt hours, and coal went down by 270 terawatt hours, and renewables increased by 170 terawatt hours, huge increase in renewables almost 50% increase in renewables, 30% increase in gas, mainly as a result of the tax credits and other government uh, policies such as the federal uh, uh, portfolio renewable portfolio standards. So this means that the renewables and gas can go together, and they should uh, go together. Otherwise, it will be impossible to even come to the 3.5 degrees that we think it is bad, we may think that it's a good news if we cannot see the renewables. We come to 3.5 degrees increase only with a significant renewable uh, increase. Uh, and therefore, we shouldn't also forget that the gas, cheap gas, can be a very important supporter of as a, a backup technology to the uh, intermittent renewable uh, uh, technologies. So therefore, I see both of them going together, and uh, I do not uh, subscribe to the fact that The golden age of gas is the optimal path for climate change. It is not the optimal one, but this helps to decarbonize the energy system. We need still efficiency, renewables, and other uh, low-carbon technologies. This is the uh, one uh, uh, issue. The second one is on the the LNG exports. This is, of course, in our – uh, I have shown two different scenarios. One, a major increase worldwide in the unconventional gas production. The other one is uh, the uh, almost worldwide, a flat, almost a flat growth in unconventional gas production. And in the growth in the uh, unconventional uh, gas production worldwide, U.S. exports about 35 uh, BCM. Why? This may be a bit lower than some uh, colleagues think here. Because other countries also do produce unconventional gas, the need for imports are not so high. But there may be a hybrid scenario here. Namely, U.S. continues to increase the production, uh, the the shale gas, substantially. And in the other parts of the world, we may not see, for this or that reason, Mm -hmm. growth in the uh, unconventional gas in china there may be water problems in australia public opposition in europe it's going on so this in this case we may see higher exports from united states the uh, we believe at the iea that the free and open trade is crucial when it comes to the are we going to use it at home or are we going to export a uh, question uh, but it is also uh, – we understood very well uh, that at any specific point, we may need uh, regulatory approval and which may also uh, need to take into consideration the public interest. It is up to the U.S. Uh, government and uh, U.S. policymakers together with the uh, uh, industrial public to make their mind up. But we are definitely for free and uh, open uh, uh, trade uh, here. Third question about the uh, uh, chemicals. So we we, uh, look at several examples in the U.S. and in Europe and in other uh, countries. We have seen that some companies uh, do uh, behave differently than others. They are disclosing more uh, information. And uh, our uh, view is that full disclosure should be mandatory in terms of the, what kind of uh, uh, chemicals, their uh, implications, and the volumes they are uh, used, they should be made publicly available to everybody. This is We are very clear on that. This is our view, but uh, this is the general view of what we think, but it's of course, I'm sure my colleagues here would uh, add on that. And uh, again, the, the, uh, the uh, pipeline issue, this is I mentioned about valves uh, today, but in our report you will see that we talk about the pipelines a lot, about the, uh, the design of the pipelines, uh, monitoring the pipelines and especially in terms of leakage, we have suggested several uh, uh, principles uh, or rules how uh, they have to be uh, made leak free and how they have to be monitored throughout their uh, lifetime. But perhaps for these two other questions, I may want to turn uh, to my colleagues if you want to add something.
4: Uh, uh, Let me just uh, address a a couple of pieces of of the questions. First of all, I I think the President has publicly stated his interest in addressing the issues relative to uh, the disclosure of what is in fracking fluids and ensuring that those fluids are, are properly managed. Um, that is an issue of, of great concern to EPA. As many of you know, we have an ongoing study looking at that issue, and we have taken great efforts to try to identify uh, the fracking fluid uh, compounds that are being used. Um, the Department of Energy is working on guidance documents related uh, to disclosure on uh, federal lands, Um, We also have underground injection uh, guidelines uh, for fluids that that the agency manages to try to help and assist states who are addressing these issues. So it is a large issue of concern and one in which we are trying uh, very hard to work uh, together to understand how the entire system related to hydraulic fracturing, not just the air emissions, but, but the water uh, discharges as well uh, can be managed in a way that that is safe and responsible. Um, I will also indicate that that I don't disagree that along the entire chain there are opportunities for improvement and for minimizing leaks. EPA's air emission standards that I just indicated really reflect a a requirement under the Clean Air Act for us to look at traditional pollutants like volatile organics and toxics. By the time that the the, uh, natural gas is in the pipeline, those contaminants are minimized to the extent that these regulations aren't particularly helpful in terms of addressing those issues. So so we have to look at this issue a bit more comprehensively um, and look at what the authorities are and what the incentives might be to address these downstream of the upstream, if you will, emissions. Um, I will say, as a person who worked in state government for about 25 years, one of the we identified this in in Massachusetts, in particular, when we were developing a climate change action plan as a significant issue for the state to address. Um, we identified that there are there are leakages of natural gas that are considerable all the way to people's homes, uh, and one of the things we looked at was how, in fact, we we design payments uh, relative to natural gas delivery in a way that, that is uh, a bit wiser, that, that would provide disincentives in the, in the economics of how we reimburse natural gas companies um, that, would, that would encourage leak detection, not just leaks that are there for safety, but leaks that are there to prevent uh, the emissions of greenhouse gases. Uh, because right now many states actually pay for those leaks. Um, They don't um, in any way penalize leakage that doesn't get delivered to consumers. And that's a big issue, and one where there may be more creative approaches to take a look at working with states. But I'm speaking from a few years ago, so maybe some states have already addressed this issue and companies have worked on it.
0: I'll just make a couple of additional points. um, Building on what Gina said, Uh, I do think uh, leakage inside the city gate is a huge issue. I think it's an area where the democratization of data is going to help us. Um, As I mentioned in my remarks, we have the technology to pinpoint these leakages. There's a company called Picaro that sells a device uh, that uses infrared technology to pinpoint where plumes from natural gas leaks take place. These devices are now getting out into the world, and their results are being put on the web uh, so you're in a position where you can map an entire city and see where the leakage is happening. Uh, if, you ma- if you match that with an economic incentive to reduce the leak, pretty soon you're going to have a powerful reason to have less leaks inside the city gate. In a city like New York City where I live, where a lot of the natural gas delivery takes place in very old cast iron pipes, uh, of course there's huge uh, leakage and there's a huge opportunity for – environmental and and climate forcing improvement if you reduce those. Uh, And I know that Mayor Bloomberg, who's very active in the C40 group of mayors, sees an opportunity to bring the learning that he hopes to to discover in New York City uh, to other cities around the world that have similar problems. There's a lot of leaking going on. So so optimistic about that. Our thinking began at the wellhead, but it is not limited to the wellhead. We're trying to take it all the way through uh, to the end user. Uh, on the question of uh, effect on renewables, I'll just add one quick point. Uh, if you think back to Ambassador Pascal's first slide that showed that incredible curve from 1% of total production to 35% in less than a decade, uh, uh, to me, I, I imagine us sailing up this on-ramp, uh, and our gas pedal, if you will, has been to the metal. We have surged onto this uh, uh, is it a bridge? I don't know if it's a bridge. We don't know exactly what it is yet, but we do know that it's got to have an off ramp, and we've got to find that thing. So we got on this accidentally. These were market forces that drove this. This was not anything that anybody decided. When gas prices plunged to two bucks per, per million BTU, uh, this was locked in. Coal was a loser, cheap, even expensive older nuclear is a loser, and renewables may be a loser except that prices for solar are dropping uh, and with the right policy mix in place, uh, we can actually get to a place where this increased use of natural gas enables renewables in a smart way because, um, as Fatih alluded to, the latest generation of of, uh, gas-fired power plants can power up at, uh, I believe it's 50 megawatts per minute. It's like a jet plane. So that's an incredible complement to an intermittent supply until we get great energy storage in place, wind and solar remain intermittent, but we can build up more of those intermittent sources as baseload power if we have nimble gas-fired power to support them. So this can be a positive thing, but I agree if we build so much new natural gas-fired generation that we lock in a natural gas future with no off-ramp, it's going to be disastrous. So we can't afford to do that. It's it's where the markets can't be left to themselves to make these decisions. We have to uh, intervene and make sure that market incentives are taking us where we need to go.
1: Thank you. Uh, I guess we are almost running out of time. Uh, in that case, I, I'll just want to ask a final quick question for Fatih Birol, uh, which is, uh, considering that different countries have different levels of carbon intensity, and especially different carbon intensities in their power generation, which will be the main driver for for gas demand. Uh, Could you walk us through the different parts of the world where, uh, what would be the net impact of the golden rules, applying these golden rules for carbon
3: reduction or slowing down carbon? First of all, let me tell you something which could uh, surprise uh, some of you here. When you look at the we have just last week released our CO2 emissions data. When you look at the last five years, among all the countries in the world, what country or which country was the one which country reduced emissions the most? You would think it is Europe because there are lots of uh, climate policies in Europe, even a carbon price, but it was not United States. The biggest reduction in the CO2 emissions in the five years took place in the United States for two reasons. One, as a result of the efficiency standards put in place in the transportation sector, oil demand went down substantially, and therefore there will be a a gain from uh, emission reduction of CO2. And second, (laughs) uh, uh, there is a major, (laughs) major decline major major decline in the coal consumption, mainly gas replacing coal, and the renewables are growing. Please look at the numbers. I'm not talking about any scenario for the the numbers. Renewables increase in the U.S. in the last five years, almost 50%. And two-thirds are coming from wind uh, alone. This is one. Second, worldwide, I think it is – expected that both in the U.S. and in China, we may see a positive role of uh, gas decarbonizing the system, especially in China. Uh, It can have major impacts uh, there, but governments have to be very careful that the lower gas prices do not bring us to – lead us to uh, cancel or forget the support for renewables and other low-carbon technologies, because gas alone will not bring us to where we want to go, and, in fact, it can, as uh, uh, other colleagues said, it can lock in our uh, future. So we need uh, all of them, but gas can play a role as well. Today, what I see the risk is that undermining the positive role of gas in the decarbonization of the energy system in a context where there is no much hope in the very short time to the international legally binding agreement, we have to find short-term solutions in order to leave the door open uh, that we can reach one day at a two degrees trajectory. And gas, together with efficiency and renewables, are uh, one of those uh, uh, policy tools uh, to push. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, and please join me thanking this distinguished panel.